Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Today on World Footprints, we'll contemplate the personal boundaries of stone walls with Ansel Adams' protege, Mariana Cook. We'll look at the fusion between echo couture and glamour, We'll learn from one traveler about her initiatives to fight human trafficking, and we'll also talk about Dubai's green initiatives. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're going on a real eclectic and exciting journey today. Yes, we are. Today on World Footprints, we will discover the personal boundaries of stone walls with photographer Mariana Cook, the last protege of Ansel Adams. I started thinking about what walls meant between people, and I had I went and looked at the spot where the cows might have crossed, um, and I realized just how beautiful the wall was. We'll hear how fashion designer Elizabeth St. John fuses glamour with elegant echo couture and leaves a positive impact in others' lives. The fabrics that we use are comprised of 100% recycled plastic water bottles. So mm. that is a, a source that is sustainable. It's actually green because we're recycling products. After hearing about the travesty of human trafficking while on travel, Deborah Sigmund founded Innocence at Risk to fight child exploitation and human trafficking. You're telling me there's a whole business? And she said it's the whole entire business. And that many people are turned the other way, and sometimes the governments are involved with cover-ups. With all of the development occurring in Dubai, a special commitment to make it sustainable is underway, as we learn from one of the representatives of the United Arab Emirates, Sal al Noe. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Mariana Cook is an extraordinary photographer who is actually the last protege of Ansel Adams. Mariana's work can be seen in major museums throughout the world, including the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and the National Gallery in London, England, among many others. She has produced several amazing portrait books, including Fathers and Daughters, Couples, and Mathematicians. And she joins us today to discuss her newest photographic book, Stone Walls, Personal Boundaries. Mariana, welcome to World Footprints. Pleasure to be with you. Now I have to ask you, I have loved Ansel Adams as long as I knew how to take a, a carry a camera. What was it like studying under such a great man? Well, he's a lot of fun, for one thing, um, and um, he was very supportive of me and my work, uh, and he taught me my craft, uh, but he had a great sense of humor and, uh, obviously, a re remarkable sensibility for light and shadow and texture and tonal range, and the he taught me um, how to express what I saw and felt. Hmm. It, did you did you have the opportunity to travel with him when he traveled around, golly, the country, the world, uh, on some of his photo shoots? Were you able to accompany him on any of those? He wasn't photographing when I knew him. He was already uh, seventy six, I think, when I met him. Um, so at that point, he he wasn't really photographing anymore. 
Mm. But mm. I was in the dark room with him while he was printing. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot you can learn in dar- in the dark room having uh having grown up myself with a couple of uh photographers in the family. That's right. Now, uh, your new book, Stonewall's Personal Boundaries, this was inspired by a wall surrounding your house in Martha's Vineyard. Tell us about what prompted you to to photograph these uh, these figures. Well, it's uh, it's actually it, the wall itself is a boundary wall between me and my neighbor, so it doesn't actually surround our house, but it separates our properties. And it was the day before Thanksgiving, and it was quite warm. Um, it then froze the, that night, and the 56 cows that were on my neighbor's land uh, must have sensed the chill wind, and they came over before any of the rest of us knew it was going to be cold, uh, and found a place to cross uh, in this wall uh, and sought shelter in our trees uh, and kind of dug up the lawn, which we had just planted. So... There was some tension between me and my neighbor, and she just wanted to repair the electrical fence that had not worked properly, and I wanted to repair the wall in case she fixed the fence and it didn't work properly, and, you know, we had the same thing again. So I started thinking about what walls meant between people, and I had I went and looked at the spot where the cows might have crossed, um, and I realized just how beautiful the wall was. I mean, it, it, nobody would say, oh my gosh, that's a gorgeous wall if they went by it. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized that it was quite beautiful in the landscape, up close, and parts had fallen down. And Stonewall's personal boundaries is really structured as that kind of narrative. Um, the first section is called Personal Boundaries, which is the subtitle of the book. And it's pictures of walls in landscape, in England, in all over the Mediterranean, in Kentucky, and on Martha's Vineyard, in New England. And the second portion is called Containment, where I'm right up close uh, photographing the abstractions of how stones are placed together and the lichen and the shadow of branches on the stones. Mm. And then the third section is called Back to the Earth, and those are photographs of walls tumbling down um, and because the, the book concentrates on farm walls and boundaries, uh, personal, not important walls like Hadrian's Wall or walls that were built by lots of people for reasons of power, um, it's, a, it's a common story all over the world of the, the decline of the family farm. And this third section depicts that decline. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it took you eight years to produce this collection of, of works. Um, where did you travel, and how did you identify the subjects that you wanted to photograph? Well, an archaeologist uh, showed me around the Peak District in Britain. Um, I happened to meet him when I was working on my book of portraits of scientists. And uh, he told me I should go to the Western Ireland. So that's what sent me to Inishman. And then I was also in France, um, and I was going to have a section on France, and somebody, another archaeologist who was advising me there said I really should include other places in the Mediterranean. So that took me to Majorca, Malta, and Sicily. So then there's the Mediterranean section. And there are six essays in the back of the book. One is on the Mediterranean. One is on Britain. I also went to the Shetland Islands. There are a lot of walls on islands. 
um, there's a section on Peru, even though those aren't farm walls, the juxtaposition of the stones in Machu Picchu and places like that were just so fantastic. Um, and in the end, I'm an artist, so I want to make images that speak to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peru is also included in the book, and Kentucky, and New England, and um, where else did I go? Yeah, Mediterranean, Ireland, Britain, uh, lots of places. Now, you you mentioned that you know I mean as an artist and I, I understand um, your comment that you know your subjects speak to you and so what is it about really the history I, I see your book as being kind of a historical uh, essay as well um, but so what is it about the history and the the messages that walls send that really resonated? with you and is there a a wall uh, that really spoke to you during the course of this uh, your research there's one on the island of Inishman Uh, you see it and it looks like a a farm wall it's a lace wall which means it has spaces between the stones so when you look at it you think gosh I wonder why it hasn't fallen down well the fact is that there are very strong winds on this island and the wind would be strong enough to knock a wall down if the stones were pushed up right against each other. They would be stronger than the wall. So if you leave spaces between the stones, the wind has some place to go and whistles through the spaces and leaves the stones intact. But when, you, when I came upon the wall, I thought, why is this wall here? Because it sits on a stone plateau. And I thought, why would anybody put a stone wall on a stone plateau? What are they doing? In fact... The English had pushed the Irish to the west because the land in Eastern Ireland is more arable than in the west. And these poor Irishmen had to make sand. Out of sand and seaweed, they made a very rich soil that they put on these stone plateaus and grew crops and fed their animals uh, from things that grew uh, from the soil that they made on these stone plateaus. And with the decline of the family farm, which is part of the narrative of the book and the history of stone walls, uh, they no longer make the the soil because there aren't that many people farming anymore. So you just have the stone wall on the stone plateau. And it's really metaphoric for what's happening all over the world uh, with family farms kids don't stay on the farm anymore. They want to go to the big city and make their fortune, or at least they used to. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no point in using uh, stones because if the wall, if the boundary didn't last for more than 30 years, it didn't matter. The the farm would have been sold by then. So people import barbed wire or they import wood from someplace else. There isn't one tree on the island of Inishman, so they couldn't even make a gate into a field out of wood. But now, with the Industrial Revolution, you know, you can transport materials and do things locally that you were never able to do before. Um, and sadly, as, as Wendell Berry uh, says in his in letter to me at the beginning of the book, um, it imports an economy from somewhere else, and it does not support the local community. Mm-hmm. So the walls are falling down, and uh, the farmers aren't building them so much anymore for practical reasons, because their son is going to go off or their daughter is going to go off somewhere else. 
and it's very, very sad. I don't know that anybody's happier <laughs> than they were when they had their family farm and they could make their own food and mm-hmm. live together. Uh, yeah. Well, on, on the flip side of that, is there a wall that you discovered that you felt was very inspiring and inspired, you know, just uh, optimism and, and hope and um, just an appreciation for the advances that, that we've made as a society? No. Wow. I mean, that wall... I think is remarkable, and it it's um, I found that very sus- inspiring because of its history and what people did. But no, I mean now people build stone walls because they've decided that they're design elements, and if they're going to build a house, they want to have a wall and this and that. But these walls are are made very self consciously. Mm-hmm. I mean, which isn't to say that they aren't more you know more or less beautiful to look at. But they're they're not made by the person who lives in the house um, for for practical reasons. And one of the things that was so fascinating was to see that regular people had a such remarkable aesthetic sense combined with the practicality of, of how to get a wall to stand upright. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, Wendell Berry, and I, I know a portion of the proceeds from your book Stone Walls. Um, is going to benefit the Dry Stone uh, Conservancy in Lexington, Kentucky. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the conservancy and, uh, and just the relationship there with uh, that you have, the personal relationship you have with uh, the folks of Kentucky? Well, Carolyn Murray Woolley um, wrote the definitive book on uh, stone fences, as they call them, in Kentucky. And I was very fortunate um, that she spent two days with me uh, showing me around and, and giving me some of the history of the walls in Kentucky. She knows an enormous amount. And she and her daughter, Jane, uh, started this Stonewall Conservancy where they have workshops and they uh, people come and they're taught how to build walls and how to restore walls. Um, and I just thought that was fantastic and uh, wanted to support them by giving a pro portion of the proceeds to them to further their work. Mm-hmm. Will you? Um, what are your plans for exhibiting uh, photographs from this book, or, or do you have an exhibition coming up of uh, any of your works? Uh, well, I have an exhibition up at the moment at um, my studio at uh, 962 Park Avenue, and that should be up for another month or so. And... Um, may have some an exhibit. I actually have an exhibit in Settle, England um, of, of the work uh, in a tiny town there at the garden, uh, the uh, gallery on the green, it's called. And uh, But that's it. It was really a, a meant to be, I mean, the, the pictures, I think, are beautiful, and they are large. They're about a meter square, many of them. Um, so they are definitely uh, artworks. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And uh, what is your website for our listening audience uh, benefit to, to learn more about your work and, and even follow where you're, uh, where you're going to be? Oh, thank you. It's just www.cookstudio.com. Uh, but if you Google me, Marianna Cook, that website should come right up as well. Oh, great. Mariana Cook, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Coming up, 
fashion designer Elizabeth St. John dresses us in elegant eco couture. The fabrics that we use are comprised of 100% recycled plastic water bottles. So mm. that is a, a source that is sustainable. It's actually green because we're recycling product. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm Alex from Baltimore, Maryland, and Tanya and Ian brought me to Baltimore by listening to World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also, visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Hello, this is Mertice Spadola from Gallery Mertice in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love World Footprint Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Imagine how fulfilling your life would be if your work were your passion. And this passion provided a wonderful living, but also allowed you to have a positive impact in the lives of others. Designer Elizabeth St. John is living a passion that she began cultivating at the age of five. From that tiny beginning to now, Elizabeth is known for her elegant couture that is a masterful fusion of eco-friendly and glamour. Outside of her Silver Spring, Maryland studio, Elizabeth is also known for her humanitarian work. She donates a percentage of profits from her couture collections to charities that do hands-on work throughout the world, and she has co-founded the Universal Strategic Services Foundation, which works at the crossroads of human needs and the environment. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you for having me. You're leaving. Uh, you're kind of the ultimate example of someone who leaves positive footprints uh, one step at a time, which is our, our tagline. Um, so I'm very happy to have you. Uh, you know, I can't believe in, in, in reading your bio and looking at everything you've done, I can't believe that our paths haven't crossed until now. 
And, uh, you know, you're, uh, I'll tell you, when I attended the D.C. Fashion Week uh, a couple of weeks ago, your designs really wowed me. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed them. Well, you know, I could see myself in, in many of your, of your designs. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm happy to know that not only, you know, are you using sustainable materials, uh, but you're a neighbor, and so I have quick access to you. <laughs> well, come by any time. I'm, I'm here for you. Definitely. Um, I'm glad to hear, though, that you you enjoyed um, looking at the collection and actually saw pieces that you would want to wear. That's actually um, how I I design. I I try and design pieces that people will want to Mm -hmm. wear. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, your your designs, I thought, uh, my taste is generally very classic, Um, classic with a flair, and and I think that's what uh, resonated with me, because a lot of your, the dresses, you know, are classic, but they had that kind of artistic edge to them. Wonderful. So, talk about your early beginnings, you know, I mean, it's a blessing to know what you want to be at the age of five, and then really to see that early dream fulfilled. Talk about those early days. Well, I didn't really know that I I wanted to do this as a living. Um, It just seemed something that I was doing naturally Um, as a a child, you know, you're always curious as to what your parents do, and I, I thankfully was very lucky to have a mother that was a master tailor, so... Um, I would, you know, to spend time with my mom, I would go down to her workshop, and I, I would watch what she would be working on. And and the two of us, as I would get older, the two of us would, would kind of work together in um, coming up with, you know, creative pieces and, and things like that. So it, it just seemed natural to me to go into fashion. Mm-hmm. But it, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. But but then you you know when you studied uh, went into college you actually pursued environmental uh, studies. Yes. So was that kind of a detour from your original? Mm, I guess you could say it was a detour. I didn't really think of fashion as as a, a career. To be honest with you, it just seemed like something you did, like cooking and you know cleaning and sewing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it just seemed very natural to me. I didn't consider that as an option, to be completely honest. Um, so when I went to college, I actually um, focused on what my personal interests were, and I've always loved spending time outside. I love animals. I love traveling. Um, I just I just like the fact that we live on a planet. So I wanted to um, to focus on something that was a little bit more tangible, um, and environmental studies was, was that. And it seems as though, you know, those studies actually provided a foundation for your commitment uh, to work with sustainable materials. Indeed, yes. Now, you know, in, in, in addition to um, one of the things I really loved finding out about you, that, uh, in addition to using 100% natural materials, yes. uh, you are also on track to having your studio, your design studio, completely wind-powered in early 2012. Tell us about that. Well, um, I, I'm happy to say that there's a lot of um, opportunity now if you do want to uh, lower your carbon footprint and and be a little bit more green in lifestyle. So a lot of the um, utility companies, for example, are offering alternatives to traditional uh, energy. So we've decided that we're going to go 100% green on our energy needs. Um, as you know, uh, production uh, is, is uh, very intensive on energy. 
So we wanted to, to do whatever possible um, we could, obviously, within our, our limited budget, but obviously in this case it, it works out well for us. Um, but we were going to reduce our footprint, and it, it started as, as something small. I wanted to initially put out a concept collection where we would um, waste as little materials as possible, and it just kind of expanded from there. And and uh, we decided to go 100% wind power uh, actually by February. So in about six months, we'll be completely green on our production. Wow. I mean, you're really walking the talk in this in this instance. So, um, you know, I another thing that, uh, that I've heard you say is that your natural talents are focused on fashion, but your passion lies with uh, poverty alleviation and um, the environment, which, yes. which we've discussed. And I know you've done a lot of work around the world. You mentioned you love to travel. Um, you've left positive footprints in many places that you've traveled. And you've actually co-founded an organization that helped uh, create vocational schools in Kabul and Port-au-Prince. Yes. Talk about some of your philanthropic activities. Um, well, when I decided to go into fashion full-time, um, which I've been doing for a few years now, I, I kind of um, felt as though I wasn't doing enough to, other, to help others um, as I was when I was actually working overseas. Um, when I had spent time in South America, for example, I realized that there was just extreme poverty that people in this country, and I grew up in this country, that, that don't realize exist. Um, and with very small um, contributions, you can really make a huge difference in the lives of, of people overseas. And these are people that, that basically live off the land. So in order, you know, for me to kind of help myself, I guess you could say, in, in my goals of, of trying to, um, you know, reduce carbon footprints and, and things like that, I could help others in, in doing so as well. So we started um, the Universal Strategic Services Foundation with a couple of colleagues. And our first project, actually, that we wanted to do was, um, was the Inclusive Solar Power Project, which was basically aimed at providing long-term fixed-cost clean energy to poor parts of the world, so Sub-Saharan Africa, Central and South America, and parts of Asia. And that sort of expanded into a more direct uh, way of helping these, these people, in, in most cases women, um, like for example, as you mentioned, the school in, in Afghanistan, a lot of the women in these parts of the world don't have the opportunity that Western women have. They don't have the education. There really just is, is no infrastructure for them. So we, we sort of wanted to put together a project that would not only help them better their lives, but would also um, uh, provide uh, for the future, for the community, for their families, and in teaching one person, mm -hmm. they can go on and teach others as well. And in doing so, they could also improve the, the lives of others that we wouldn't be able to directly. So kind of like the, the principle, you teach a man to uh, fish and, you know, he, you feed him for a lifetime or he eats for a lifetime, kind exactly. of the same principle. Exactly. I, I wanted to circle back to, uh, you know, the materials that, uh, that you use. You know, some people may not really understand how you identify um, natural 
uh, organic materials versus those that uh, that are that are not. I mean, what are some of the the criteria for natural well, materials? I think there there is a little bit of confusion when people think green, they they immediately think organic, and it doesn't necessarily mean organic. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. We use um, PET recycled uh, fabrics for our linings. Um, we use satin fabric, you cannot tell the difference between our fabrics and any other fabrics that might otherwise be used, but those, the fabrics that we use are comprised of 100% recycled plastic water bottles. So mm. that is a, a source that is sustainable. It's actually green because we're recycling product, um, but it is not per se natural. It doesn't occur naturally like cottonwood. Um, that being said, we <laughs> our other collections are also comprised of natural fabrics. So silk, for example, is a natural fabric. Cotton, um, linen we use in some of our collections. All of these materials are um, we try and sustain. Uh, we try and source from sustainable uh, sources. Mm -hmm. Um, our silks, for example, we we source from um, places that will use vegetable dyes because the dyeing process is also very harsh on the environment. Um, it does contaminate water depending on, on how it's used. So we, we minimize our use of, of materials that, um, that would otherwise be harmful. Okay. And, you know, and I know there's materials that uh, others have identified as being eco-friendly, such as bamboo, which is, you know, yeah. uh, something that I love against the, uh, you know, my skin. Yeah. Um, but I also have heard that the process uh, to making bamboo um, fabric Actually uses a lot of chemicals in the in the process. Is that correct? It is correct. Okay. It depends on the type of fabric that is being manufactured, but it is in fact correct. Mm. So you have to be very careful when you consider um, you know the the term eco friendly because it, it may be eco in one aspect, but in another aspect it it could be more harmful than, um, say, a traditional process. Kind of going back to, you know, a lot of your, your charity work, your community work, um, we just commemorated the 10th anniversary, anniversary of 9-11, and I know that you received a special service recognition from the American Red Cross in New I York did. for your work at Ground Zero. Congratulations on Thank that. You. Thank you. And, you know, everybody has a 9-11 story what is yours, and what inspired you to, to do the work that you did that earned this recognition through the Red Cross? To be honest with you, when 9-11 happened, I had literally just moved to New York. I was unpacking my bedroom when the first tower was hit. I had the television on. My husband, at the time, was working for Merrill Lynch across the street from World Trade Center 1. Mm. Um, I watched just like everyone else did on television. I saw the towers come down. Um, I, you know, of course scrambled to, to find my, my family and make sure that everyone was accounted for. Um, but because of, I had literally just moved to, D to New York, I felt 
as though I needed to do something for my new community. So um, in the days immediately after um, the attacks, we sort of mobilized and I ended up working for the Red Cross chapter at St. John's University there, um, just a few blocks from the World Trade Center, and I helped oversee um, the, the care station that they had set up for the rescue workers that were actually digging and looking for people at the tower site. Um, so I spent some time there, and I also volunteered for another organization that ended up setting up uh, databases to track the family members and disperse payment out to the family members of the, um, the surviving family of the people that were um, unfortunately lost in the towers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that, that fall and early winter, um, I just remember <laughs> being in, in southern Manhattan and it just, it, it, it looks like a blur to me now, but um, looking back, I'm, I'm actually very um, grateful that I had the opportunity to help in, in whatever small way that I could. Well, uh, Elizabeth St. John, you are uh, you're one of our favorite global citizens, and uh, and you you give back in such uh, a beautiful way. And uh, anyone listening wants to uh, purchase a Christmas present for me, <laughs> the <They're> long <laughs> red dress. That's that's oh, I could see myself in this dress. But uh, um, I'd like to send people to your website because I know that uh, although your dresses, uh, your um, garments are sold all over the world, yeah. uh, people can actually order online and have, um, have uh, you know, dresses uh, custom made according to the um, um, kind of online, uh, what do you call it, tape measure. Yeah. <laughs> right, you, you specify your, your piece. So, for example, if you like your red dress, um, you can have that dress tailored to what your specific needs would be. So if you want to make slight modifications to a piece, you can do that and we'll make it specifically for you. It's just part of our green um, business model. We don't um, overproduce, so everything is made specifically for each individual that's And what's your website? It's www.elizabethstjohn.com. Great. Elizabeth St. John, thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you. Human trafficking is a signature cause of World Footprints, and we appreciate joining forces with people like Deborah Sigmund, who shares a commitment to fighting this growing crime. You're telling me there's a whole business? And she said it's the whole entire business. And that many people are turned the other way, and sometimes the governments are involved with cover-ups. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Johannes from Pretoria, Gauteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World Footprint Radio. It is exciting. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. 
to report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information, including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Marcia Alexion, and I'm talking to you from Vancouver right now. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been living in Vancouver for about 20 years, and I love World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As you know, the fight against human trafficking is one of World Footprints' major causes. Until recently, little attention had been paid to this crime, despite the fact that it is the fastest-growing criminal industry in the world. In 2002, while on a trip in Europe, Deborah Sigmund first heard the phrase human trafficking. When she later learned about human trafficking and the challenges and issues surrounding this fight against crime, Deborah took her knowledge and turned it into action. In 2006, she founded Innocence at Risk, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that was formed specifically to help fight human trafficking. Deborah, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on. You know, we, we talk a lot about travel being a transformative uh, experience for everyone, but talk about a transformative trip for you. How did the topic of human trafficking come up during your holiday in Europe? I was talking to a friend who was actually working on it, and she every evening we would get back after an event. We were there for a special birthday celebration, and she would say, I have to check on these children, and I asked her how many children she had. She said, oh, I have a son, but this is, this is uh, not about my children. So I said, what do you do? And she said, oh, well, I'll tell you later. So finally, after three days, she told me that she was working with children that had actually been trafficked, and I had no idea what that was. Mm. So it was really an eye-opening experience for it you. It was. I told her, I said, you know, I know there's sick people that would take a child, but I said, you're telling me there's a whole business? And she said, it's a whole entire business. And that many people are turned the other way, and sometimes the governments are involved with cover-ups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, having worked with, um, we've partnered with the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. They're one of our, our partners, and that was, you know, a comment that they made, too, and that, in, in, you know, enforcement uh, and, and prosecution uh, is very difficult in these situations. Exactly. Well, fortunately, that's changing. Um, it's changing in the United States. There are more and more uh, arrests and, and more people are being brought to justice. Mm-hmm. And this is, and we do need to continue this and certainly make tougher 
uh, tougher laws, easier to arrest the perpetrator and and you know and and be in jail for a long, long, long time. As far as I'm concerned, they should throw away the key. But absolutely, and I, you know, I I know you spent a lot of time researching the issue of human trafficking. You traveled to New York um, and met with Ricky Martin. You traveled to Stockholm and met uh, Queen Sylvia. Sylvia. And, um, you know, talk about how those meetings helped shape the formation and the foundation for Innocence at Risk. Well, in the beginning, I, I learned a lot about it through uh, information from Interpol. And I heard um, President Bush bring this to the world's attention when he actually addressed it um, to the United Nations and at the U.N. General Assembly. And what it did, it actually gave me the the confidence to speak about it publicly. I mean, I talked among my friends, and we because we were all mothers. And then, coincidentally, I met at a dinner party the person that was in charge of international global affairs, who was responsible for the issue, Paula Dobryansky. So I began at the State Department um, as a request uh, or invitation of the State Department, I went to New York and heard Ricky Martin address the General Assembly there. And that was very important and, and extressed, you know, and shaped, uh, let me know that what I was doing was uh, equally as important. I mean, I, meeting Ricky Martin and hearing his passion about the issue, I was so pleased, I mean, to hear it. And I said, it's, I'm so glad you're doing this because we need attention to this issue. And he said, well, it's going to take all of us, mm-hmm. you know, all of us. And then I was talking to a dear friend who started Vital Voices, and she let me know that Queen Sylvia had been involved with this fight since the late, late 90s and suggested that we interview her for we were producing an awareness film at that time. So we traveled to Stockholm, a film producer and myself, and met with Queen Sylvia. And from Queen Sylvia, I learned it's it's okay to talk about this because these are children, and they have no voice. Mm-hmm. And and I think you know, um, I mean, you raise a re- really good issue. Uh, a lot of people are very uncomfortable. I mean, you know, it's an uncomfortable. Uh, um, Topic because it's it's an unconscionable crime, uh, and you know I know the, oh, education, greater awareness, uh, th- those are keys, and and action really those are keys to to fighting this on a global scale. Uh, in in the nearly six years that Innocence at Risk has been operating, how you've hinted a little bit about how the fight against human trafficking has has changed uh, and I'm wondering how your organization has adjusted to to these new changes whether it be greater awareness or um, in some cases it's still in countries apathy well there's more general awareness I mean certainly we've contributed a little bit to that certainly in the Washington area in the philanthropic world uh, people would say, oh, well, so-and-so cares about that issue you care about. I mean, it was really just not spoken about. And I said, look, these are children, and this is happening everywhere in the world, and it's happening in our city. We need to do something about it. And through our awareness events, we believe awareness is prevention. And we know that uh, 
will just once you're aware of something with your own child or your neighbor's child, you will just act accordingly, and it will be on guard. And just you know, we're not alarmists, but we just want people to be realistic that this is happening in the world, and if it's a thirty over a thirty-two billion dollar industry, then no child is safe. Yeah. So don't let your daughter go off to Aruba by herself, and don't leave your children alone in a park uh, or in a mall. And the other example of uh, a wonderful awareness tool was the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. Uh, That did more for awareness in this area than, I believe, any other film. And what we say is what happened in those scenes in Paris before it happens on our streets and our malls and our airports as well. And we've also began... Flight attendants came to us and said, we need um, help. We, we see what you're talking about. We don't know what to do about it. So we produced a blue training manual, which started with one flight attendant. Now we have a few thousand out there working on this issue. Mm-hmm. Thanks to our partnership with Airline Ambassadors and Nancy Brevard. Mm-hmm. Who's and been on our show. Mm-hmm. Oh, she has great. Yeah, well, yeah, she's a friend. Well, great. She's, she's an angel. And... But we've been able to expand this, and now Nancy and I were just in New York with the First Lady of the Dominican Republic, who said she's going to begin in her country with training airport personnel. Uh, This is a big step. But what we've learned from flight attendants is that just open your eyes and report what you see, and you don't have to be a flight attendant. You can be just a knowledgeable passenger who cares you see a child or a young girl or young boy, check out where they're going. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and if it's not, if things don't look right, if it, there are too many red flags or any one red flag, just report it to the flight attendant. So I think you should ask for this to be checked out. Well, in, you know, and I think uh, awareness would have, uh, or actually it saved the life of uh, the young boy. I don't know if you remember the story about a year ago, the young boys flying from... Uh, Philadelphia, I believe, on U.S. Airways, and, you know, several red flags. The ticket uh, agent asked the male um, adult who this child was traveling with for uh, this young boy's name. He couldn't give it off the top of his head. He was rifling rifling through papers. Um, The little boy looked despondent, and long story short, there was a, a fellow passenger who actually, I believe, had gone through some uh, some training. She was an, uh, a stewardess, but flying as a... Uh, uh, yeah, and, mm-hmm. you know, because of her awareness, and, and she actually uh, engaged the little boy, and, he, and she asked him, you know, are you uh, looking forward to going to Florida? And, um, or, and the little boy said, oh, I thought we were going to North Carolina. And, you know, that was enough for her to alert the flight attendants on board. And so when they, the plane landed, authorities were waiting for this man. And, and in fact, that child was a victim of human trafficking. Um, and so just because of that awareness, and so I, I love what you what you are doing, and I love the fact that, you know, you, uh, you've you partnered with organizations like uh, Airline Ambassadors, and um, uh, you've gotten a lot of congressional support and uh, inform those strategic partners that I uh, think are really critical uh, in this battle. We've testified, I've testified to the Human Rights Commission uh, about 
about our initiative, our flight attendant initiative, and said we need support. We have tremendous support from uh, a division of Homeland Security, which is ICE, Immigration Custom Enforcement, and Custom Border Patrol. And what they have asked is that we inform the flight attendants or airline personnel, if they have any red flags, please report it. But they can so easily check it out. And passengers don't even mind. They have, not that they would be disturbed about this, but people want to know. People want to know what they can do, and they want to know how they can help. And one way they can help is open your eyes, talk about this issue. Uh, we turn a million, a million eyes on this and make it very difficult, make it impossible for this to go on. Because mm -hmm. we really do have to wake up, wake up America and wake up the world that we can do something. Indeed. And, you know, one of the, the myths that we continue to um, fight against and, and, and share is that this is not a third world issue. This is not a socioeconomic issue. This is not a gender issue. Human trafficking uh, is a non-discriminatory crime. Anybody, you know, uh, whether you're male, female, young, old, rich, poor, you know, uh, in living in an affluent area or, uh, you know, a third world slum, anyone can be a victim of human trafficking. And I was really shocked to read on uh, on your website, in fact, you know, I know that um, human trafficking is a $32 billion industry, but what, I, what shocked me was that in our area alone, in the D.C. area, um, child trafficking is a $100 million industry, and that... Annually. Yeah. Annually. Yeah. That's, I, I, I have a really difficult time even grasping that that number it's so astronomical and and i i just i can't oh my goodness i i'm really well, it speechless is, it, it's 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 startling and it, and it was to me as well and and new york is worse uh even uh these figures come from from the fbi and uh, i think they're even greater it's estimated that approximately 300 children are are Caught up in the sex trade in the within the United States every year, mm. and it, it is heartbreaking. It really is, and it's just uh, we need to stop it. It's it's so much easier to prevent it before it happens because once the young girl or boy, woman, uh, is a part of this world, it's very difficult to find them, and it's very difficult to get them out. I mean, it does happen, certainly, and, and God bless all of the NGOs that work with the survivors, because that is, that is truly God's work. Indeed. And uh, we, we support them and our hats off to them. And we also partner with, with Polaris, who run the national hotline number, which is 888-373-7888. And so if you see something anytime at a mall or something that doesn't look right or in the street or if you see someone at a uh, getting the child or someone driving by an area with children report the license plate that's something you can do mm -hmm. report mm -hmm. what you you see and the hotline is 24 hours and it's there and ready to take um, to act on your information indeed 
Now, I know that um, your organization, Innocence at Risk, holds several events throughout the year. And for those listeners who are not in the D.C. area, what can they do to help support your efforts and your mission? Well, we, you can go online and you can uh, or call our office and uh, make a donation. We, we do not get government funding. We never really wanted to stand in front of service providers. Uh, we do believe that our, our flight attendant initiative um, is working and it's saving lives and it's definitely prevention. So with that, we have applied for funding and hopefully when the economy turns around, <laughs> somewhere down the road, we'll we'll be able to, to get that. But we've been able to raise funds privately. And right now, uh, Innocence at Risk and Airline Ambassadors are partnered uh, in an event next week uh, at the Mayflower Hotel, Stand Up for Children Gala. And we have Gabriella Ferreira presenting the performance of the Miami Sound Machine coming to perform. And they're basically doing this at, at their, uh, they're donating their time. And Gabriella is a new Latino singer who's taken on this cause, and she's actually written a song about the issue. So we're thrilled about this event. Uh, people can, can send a donation for it. The proceeds will go for the huge awareness event itself, which mm-hmm. we hope to bring in a lot of people and a lot of support to get involved and just turn a lot of eyes on the issue. And secondly, our joint um, awareness material that we produce for all flight attendants and airline personnel um, or come out of our office, and we'll be doing this with airline ambassadors. So okay. we are, it's an ongoing effort, and we don't rest. We continue to talk about this and go around the country, actually. So we also go to other cities. I've been to Florida and Chicago and Texas. So we will continue doing this. And uh, those awareness events really help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, a link to Innocence at Risk will be on the radio show page on our website. And Deborah Sigmund, God bless you for all the great work you're doing. This is wonderful work. It's important work. And I thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, what you're doing is is key and essential, and you're helping us spread the awareness. We recently sat down with Saud Al-Nawais from the United Arab Emirates Embassy in Washington, D.C. to talk about the growing development in Dubai and the country's commitment to maintaining cultural and environmental integrity. With all of the development that's taking place in, uh, in Dubai, what's being done to uh, ensure that this development um, respects the integrity of the the environment, uh, sustainable development. Um, One thing I can assure you is, and actually I've worked on several environment projects, there was a report published a couple of years ago uh, by the Global Footprint Network, and it actually ranked the UAE as the highest uh, carbon-emitting country. We were very alarmed. We said, we can't be promoting ourselves and business and finance and tourism and neglecting the environment, which was one of the major priority of our late uh, founding father, His Highness uh, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan. This is someone who loved the environment, someone who loved greenery, someone who came out of the Bedouin tribes from Al Ain, from a spring. So this was very essential to our culture. Some way along the line, this was neglected. However, 
whenever a development is being made, there's always environmental consultants there. I remember we created a, a task force, if you want to call it, uh, to go and try to verify the numbers at the Global Footprint Network. We said maybe they were wrong. In fact, they weren't. They were right. But we went back and we said, all right, what can we do about the environment? One, we are now trying to switch our electricity generation from burning gas into nuclear. Believe it or not, nuclear is one of the uh, uh, zero carbon emitting uh, um, energy technologies. However, obviously, there's a problem with the waste, but that's a global problem that we as a country have to work with other countries to find a solution for. But at least this is a very positive step forward. The government has uh, placed a policy that by the year 2020, 7% of our energy portfolio needs to be from clean tech, from solar, from wind. So that's what's being done, at least from an energy perspective. Another concept we talk about today is sustainability. Sustainability and living in a clean environment. So we're actually doing an experiment in the UAE. We are building a city that will be only powered by solar and wind. Um, no cars are allowed inside. Um, the infrastructure is, um, is built around uh, making sure that carbon cannot enter the city, that it's protected. Um, 40,000 residential units. Only energy company, clean energy companies can actually locate in that city. So we're trying, it's called Masdar City. It should be ready by 2014. In Abu Dhabi. It's in Abu Dhabi, but it's a, it's a smaller sort of plot of land that can house around 40,000 people and another 50,000 commuting to and from the mainland of Abu Dhabi into the city. So that's an experiment. We're raising the bar. We're hoping to achieve our objectives. If we don't, we're more than happy to invite the international community, the scientists, to come and tell us how we can improve it. But at least it's a step forward. Um, a lot of the companies helping us develop the city is actually from California and San Francisco because those are sort of the two states here in the U.S. that are more clean energy, sustainability living oriented. The third element is green building. I know that the U.S. calls it the LEED system. You have that LEED certified. Uh, we sort of took that model, uh, restructured it, and we called it the Pearl Rating System. So, Pearl, exactly. We always like to take, you know, we adapt some Western policies, we add to them, we minus from them, we make sure that they fit our environment, and we also like to brand them in our own words. So, the Pearl System, basically what it does is, it places guidelines for existing buildings to turn them into green and energy efficient. And all new buildings coming online as well, it sets the guidelines for them and what needs to be done in order for them to be green. So, you know, water recycling, uh, energy efficiency, appliances, all these things are really hot in the UAE. So we're very glad that a report criticized us because it was sort of a wake-up call. It was an alarm for us saying, look, you're neglecting this important piece. And believe it or not, without it, you won't be able to survive. So I thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're happy that you were able to join us today, and if you want more of World Footprints and everything that we have to offer, including travel deals and our library of archived shows, follow us, friend us, and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. 
We're Tanya and Ann Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.